If you're interested in podcasts with happy endings, you'd be better off listening to some other podcast. In this podcast, not only is there no happy ending, there's no happy beginning and very few happy things in the middle. I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I poured it out at a wardrobe door But I'm, I'm still seeking thunder I'm still seeking thunder Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Seeking Tumnus, the podcast where four chums over the average age of 30 wrestle with contemporary children's and young adult fiction. On alternating episodes, we also visit the books we loved in our own youth. My name is Laurie, and I'm joined by the universally masterful Keith Rowe. Hello. The prodigal Patrick Moon. Guten Tag. And the ever-buoyant Bree. Hi. This episode, we tap into the miserable misadventures of the Baudelaire children in Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, Book 1, The Bad Beginning. For those of you yet to read this waffer-thin book, or watch the movie, a warning. Warning. This episode of Seeking Tumnus will contain spoilers. But this book is so brief that you have absolutely no excuses for not having read it. If, however, you have not, I implore you to take this opportunity to pause this podcast and read the book. I promise you will enjoy this so much more if you do. If you're feeling particularly lazy, you could also watch the movie. This podcast may also contain narrative interruptions. The word interruption here refers to a break in the continuity. (laughs) Useless adults, evil adults, and some rather enterprising but suitably unfortunate kids. Now... Mr. Moon, can you please orally delight us with page one of a series of unfortunate events, The Bad Beginning? Oh Oh dear. Uh, I would love to. Page one. If you are interested in stories with happy endings, you would be better off reading some other book. In this book, not only is there no happy ending, there is no happy beginning and very few happy things in the middle. This is because not very many happy things happened in the lives of the three Baudelaire youngsters. Violet, Klaus and Sunny Baudelaire were intelligent children and they were charming and resourceful and had pleasant facial features but they were extremely unlucky and most everything that happened to them was rife with misfortune, misery and despair. I'm sorry to tell you this but that is how the story goes. And that is the first page of The Bad Beginning. Well done Patrick. Thank you Patrick. Lovely reading as always. I think I was really intrigued by that first couple of paragraphs there. It's what came next that started to turn the milk sour for me. I think we'll have to come back to it, though. So far, so good. Bree, what did you think? I am intrigued. I look forward to reading on. I find it's got this kind of quirkiness about it, and it really draws you in. Patrick? Yeah, likewise. It's a good start, and... I don't think the milk necessarily turned that sour post that point, but that may be <laughs> a point of contention that we have to deal with. Yeah, I like I like the narrative tone. I enjoy it. Keith? Firstly, well said, Patrick. 
I also liked the quirkiness and yeah, I wanted more. I've read this before, so it did bring back some memories. I do like that the author is warning you against this book as if that would deter children, but obviously has exactly the opposite effect. I find that it's a little bit cheeky. It sort of, here we go again, reminds me of one of Dahl's sort of styles. If you're interested in stories with happy endings, read something else because I'm Mm. going to have a big friendly giant come and protect children from being eaten by other big giants. Mm. And as a throwback to the first episode, it's like, let me just reassure you that witches are real. Yeah, Mm. Exactly Mm. right. Yeah, there's a definite element of that throughout the whole book as well. Bree, can you uh, expand on that first page and tell us what happens next? Sure. Narrated by the mysterious Lemony Snicket, the story opens on the three Baudelaire children walking, as we've heard, along Briny Beach. Violet is the oldest. At around 14, she invents contraptions and devices. She's right-handed, as we are told, like all 14-year-olds, and she ties up her hair when she's thinking. Younger brother Klaus at 12 is a book-intelligent boy, having read many of the books from their parents' home library. Their baby sister Sunny takes great pleasure in biting things. A business friend of their parents, Mr Poe, strides out of the fog and informs the children of the death of their parents in a fire which destroyed their home. This unfortunate event begins a series of unfortunate events where the children find themselves in the custody of an obscure relation by marriage three times removed, an eccentric, somewhat sinister actor by trade named Count Olaf. He is obsessed with the idea of gaining control of the Baudelaire fortune, and he sets about making their life an absolute misery. They are indentured to Olaf, so they cook and clean and live in a small room with just one bed between them. When Olaf realises he cannot access the inheritance as their guardian, he hatches an evil scheme to marry young Violet, ensure that her siblings meet with unfortunate accidents, and leverage from inheritance law to finally get his greedy claws on the money. Of course, using their resourcefulness, intelligence and bravery, they manage to thwart his plan. They save the hostage Sonny and reveal his deeds to the appalled adults. Olaf escapes, however, and the children are sent to another obscure family member for their next, I can only assume, depressing adventure. That's a good wrap-up. Does anyone else have anything to add to that? No, I think that's a pretty complete summary of the first book. Keith, this was your pick of this episode. Why did we follow the path of Lemony Snicket? Well, I'll just say firstly that this is kind of my first choice that we've had so far. Uh, I did spring Choose Your Own Adventure upon everyone, but uh, this is my first actual selection. Where we've all read the book. Yes, Hmm. that's right. So having said that, I don't have a singular resounding response to that question, but I read this after a few of them had come out. My wife, well, at the time girlfriend, worked in a bookstore and was reading these and I took an interest in them based on that. And for that reason, I thought this is worth a revisit. I remembered enjoying the books. I think I might have read only a couple of them, which isn't a big commitment given the size of them, but I did enjoy them and I thought this is a popular series that many other people have probably enjoyed as well. Hmm. Fair enough. So what did your partner, what did your girlfriend at the time think? Did she read them as well? Lisa, yeah, she she read all of them, I believe, and enjoyed them. Hmm. How many are there? I believe there's 13. Oh, wow. Lucky 13. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> which is maybe he, he wrote them all and then split them up into the, that magic number and that explains how thin they are. <laughs> right. Bree, what did you think of the book? I really liked it. I mean, we've mentioned the brevity, which I found interesting because there was sort of really only one 
super evil, unfortunate thing which Count Olaf does to them. But I imagine that there's more sort of adventures to come in the other 12 books following this one. But I also just like that for seven to sort of ten-year-olds, I guess, it's not just puppy dogs and ballerinas and happy endings. There's a way that you can sort of learn that there is dark and sinister things in the world and that not everything is going to end up positively. And I think that today we have a lot of sort of helicopter parents and things that are sort of watching over their small children and managing every sort of tiny facet of their lives. And it's nice that there's something a little bit cheeky, quirky, dark for those among us who appreciate a sort of a more black humour. I think this one is for the sort of younger age group, probably from around about seven-ish, as long as you've got the right sort of kid for it, I suppose. And I really liked it. And you can sit down and read it in a really short session or over a few nights as a chapter book as well, which I think is really worthwhile. Patrick? Yeah, I also really liked it. It's a nice short kind of read, like you talked about. It's easy to get through in a session or two. And I think, uh, I don't know, one of the things that that I really liked about it, I was just wandering through a a bookstore the other day and I picked up a, a hard copy of the book, which is kind of unusual for me. I I generally jump onto the Kindle and that's where I I grab all my reading materials. But uh, I was in the bookstore and they just have these beautiful hardcovers with rough cut pages and some nice little illustrations and things throughout for each of the the kind of chapter headings. And it kind of fits the, the tone of the book and it harks back to older stories where things aren't necessarily as... Uh, glossy and and neat as fiction in contemporary times often seems to be and I, I think in some ways I kind of envisaged the book being written or set in a, a time gone by somewhere you know it, it has a feel of the the 20s or the 30s or, or a writer coming from the, the 50s and so I was kind of surprised when I, I flicked to the copyright page and saw that it's uh, 1999 because it it has this beautiful kind of feel in the, the narrative and the tone like I, I talked about before that is something of a bygone era and I really enjoyed it the little asides of the author you know, defining the words uh, that he talks about I mean on the let me f- flick through on, on the second page here occasionally their parents gave them permission to take a rickety trolley the word rickety you probably know here means unsteady or likely to collapse alone to the seashore and those little authorial interjections are actually really nice and uh, I suspect Laurie may be going to tear them to shreds, but I, I liked it. And Lemony Snicket himself, I believe, becomes a character in the series as well, which uh, is another, I suppose, authorial imposition that I can actually kind of get behind. I really enjoy. I like the, those sort of quirks of narrative. It reminds me a little bit of things like The Dark Tower. And it's cool, I think, to play with narrative a little bit like that in kids' books. So I don't really have anything bad to say about it. I like it. Really good. What about you, Laurie? Am I sealing Revlon and kissing Daniel Johns because I'm torn? <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, gosh. Bound and that naked is... on the floor? <laughs> Something awful. <laughs> awful. Awful. <laughs> Lying naked on the floor. I'm split down the middle with this one, team. I really loved the voice of the narrator. I loved the theme. I loved the darkness and the dark humour and... 
the sinister characters that you hoped that the heroes, the three Baudelaire children, would triumph over. But I just hated the execution. I'm I'm sorry. I I love the setting. I love the language. But one thing that distracted me that you just said that you loved, Patrick, was the author jumping in and instructing the reader about the meaning of words. When I first read, it's sort of in the first page or two, just after where we just stopped and what you just read out there, where they define the word rickety. And the first couple of times I read it, and this is, I guess, the adult me reading it, I expected a joke. I expected that a definition would be a like a humorous definition, and I had to reread. Well, some of them were, yeah. Well, I didn't really feel like maybe there were one or two in the book, but the majority of them, by far, I thought were just pure definitions, and that really irritated me. I, I don't want to be educated, and I don't think even as a child I would want to be educated. It seemed like a real condescension to have that in the book. If I don't know what a word means, I will go look it up or I will ask a teacher or my parents or I will, you know, as an adult, I will just read it on the Kindle. I'll just click on the word and it will tell me what the meaning of the book is. This is a truly uneducated opinion you're espousing, so it's it's, it's fair. I, I really don't like being told what a word means in the middle of a story. I think it breaks up the pacing of the story. Would you prefer that it was easier to imply what the word meant from the surrounding paragraphs? Do you prefer that sort of a contextual image? No, I just want them to use, I want the author to use the language that they're comfortable with and that they think their audience will appreciate. And if it's a challenging word, I am challenged by the word, so I'll go off and look it up. And I I kind of think kids should be able to do the same without being condescended to by having it fully explained to them unnecessarily Mm. right in the middle of a sentence. I was just going to say, I think it's just a device, and I think it's a, a yeah. charming one. Oh, I, I really didn't like it at all, yeah. I agree. It's not really necessarily there as an educative tool to explain these words to children, because most often, in my opinion, it wasn't actually giving a dictionary-style definition. It was giving it in the context of the book, in the context of that situation. It was giving further detail, and it was kind of a joke that it kept happening through the book. So I think you've kind of missed the joke, not that it was particularly hilarious, but I think it was a, more so than an instructional sort of condescending explanation for children. It was a recurring joke through the book. Well, the word rickety, that first example that Patrick gave, the word rickety, you probably know, here means unsteady or likely to collapse. I mean, I don't see there's too much humour in that. That's, That's pure definition as far as I'm concerned. But the fact of the definitions, the fact that they're appearing there at all as kind of a a quirky, uh, humorous, authorial note it's not the humor doesn't necessarily lie in each and every one of the definitions although there were a few that were kind of jokey but i I think that that they give a voice to the author that's that's distinctive Mm. that's it it's it's uh lemony snicket bleeding through into the storytelling yes but he bleeds through in other ways as well it doesn't just have to be through that i also found them quite jarring i sort of sit with laurie on this one that you know you're going along in this story and then all of a sudden you've got to stop read this irritating paragraph about a definition of a word that probably a lot of kids would understand or would look to their parents to explain as they're reading through this chapter book and i found it sort of interrupted the flow of the story on more than one occasion and i preferred to get humor from other and sort of my my comedy elements from other parts of the the writing i think 
I dare say you two should have heeded the warning on the first page. <laughs> no, but I, I liked the story. I, I liked I liked the characters, and I, you know, he's evil old man. But I liked the character Count Olaf, um, and his his very evil plans, and and the way that the children overcame them. And I like the fact that the book is grim, like you mentioned, Bree. It's not lollipops and ballerinas it's 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 a gritty as the old saying goes <laughs> yeah fine sunshine and lollipops um, puppy dogs i think i went with but yeah right but just that that little thing really distracted me and for such a short book these multiple interruptions became a big thing and it really annoyed me and it annoyed me to the point where yes i'm curious about what happens next but i'm probably not going to read it because i got too irritated with it so let it go. It's. I think, like Pat says, it's it's playing with the narrative. It's a device here that isn't intended to cause. What did you say you, you felt from this? Cause irritation. irritation. <laughs> it's not not meant to irritate. It's meant to humour. I'm sure it wasn't intended to. It's just I don't know. I I liked the author speaking. I like his warnings at the beginning and and halfway through he sort of reinforces those. But those little interjections. I don't know. For me, it was distracting. So. Maybe you should just think of them as footnotes that didn't quite make it to the bottom of the page and next well, time you read they it. They should have. If you'd done that, it would have been much better. Correct. A little asterisk and a definition down the bottom, fair enough, because I can ignore them. But to interrupt a sentence, the suspension of disbelief and the, the flow of narrative was interrupted for me. So I, I, I really regret their presence because I think otherwise I would have enjoyed the book much, much more. Look, it's 50-50. Honestly, I thought that all four of us were going to say how irritated it was. Mm. Yeah, I did sort of at the start with the first couple, I thought maybe these will be annoying, but then I thought about why they would be in there and I kind of enjoyed them after that. Hmm. What were your feelings of the book, Keith? So I really enjoyed it. It was, as we've said, quite short. Right. Uh, so it was easy to get through in a couple of sessions and I want more. I did remember the plot loosely, not some of the specific details. So it wasn't really a big revelation what happened. But yeah, I enjoyed the language of the book. I enjoyed the interruptions. I enjoyed the characters, the uh, the determined and steely children, including the bitey young Sunny. She, she was great, wasn't she? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I did like the trends. You know, the kind of uh, you know she she would make noises and she would bite things, and she had real character despite having a very limited means for portraying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was great. Yeah, all of them, in fact, I liked. They all had their specifics, but they didn't seem to be one-dimensional. There was a bit more to them, and, and I liked the relationship they had with each other, that they were in it together and they were really tightly knit in that sense because in their world, effectively, the adults are either idiots or evil. So mm. they needed to stick together. I won't say idiots. They were oblivious in some cases. Uh, what, in the case how do you of- feel about that um, while you're on the topic? Like, for me, that was probably a little bit of a concern as well, that one of the lessons here for children is that adults are clueless, selfish, sort of ignoramuses, unable to be trusted. I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, you could definitely take that. Right. Pat, did you say something? Uh, did I say something? No. <laughs> Good. Keep quiet. <laughs> <laughs> But is that a good lesson for the book? Like, I, I mean, it's not a guide for life, this book. That's right. So I think that fits with the idea that's come in at the start and said this book is not what you would expect of a book, essentially. Yeah, okay. There's no happiness to be found here. And that that's part of that as well, I guess. It, it isn't preaching anything in particular, although the steely resolve of the children is commendable from that angle. 
it does have a message. But overall, I think it was kind of Dalesque in the way that the adults are sort of played these bit parts and left the children to be the highlight. Mm. It's possibly also what kids see of adults a lot of the time as well. Like they don't understand what a moron, they those sorts of things I'm sure go through their heads. They don't listen to things that I feel are really important. Yeah, that's right. Or they choose to only hear the bits that they want to hear. Or they die when I'm very young, which is the case <laughs> in so many of the books we've read so far. I was thinking just before that more often than not, our stories have been orphan children or children that have lost a parent. Mm. Our theme is not fantasy. Our theme is orphan. Orphan fantasy. <laughs> I think we continue that next episode as well, actually. Yeah, exactly. That's why I was thinking it, actually, mm. because I just started reading our next book, which you'll find out later what that is. It struck me as something that I guess is a fertile ground for young adult and children books. Mm. Patrick, is that cheap? The orphan kind of narrative. Yeah, I mean, we discussed it, the cheapness of one particular nasty type of event happening to a character in one of our previous episodes not long ago. Yeah, it's it's something that I often go on a tear about, I, I suppose. Yeah. And I think it can be. Right. But in this kind of case, it sets up an awful lot of character development, I think. Right. It's, it's kind of a side note or a, just a, a jumping off point for the, the characters here. And it's not really a defining event that's used in the place of character development, but rather something that kicks off the mm. untimely spiral into uh, unfortunate events that occurs. Yeah, it's 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 not as cheap as, as other methods of right. character development, but it, it, maybe it is a little bit lazy. They don't harp on about it too much, though. In fact, I, I kind of vaguely recall now, and maybe I should look it up, how the author describes if you've ever had somebody close to you die then you'll know how they felt and if you haven't then you never will kind of thing i should mm. should have looked up the direct quote but I, I did like that and then they kind of move on and it's more you're right about the character development and what happens next so it's also explained that they were brought up with very proper manners hence you know they they tend to just do as they're told by count olaf and they i mean obviously they rebel a little bit he gets them to do his cooking and his cleaning and they ultimately just do it they sort of feel that that's their lot in life and they've been brought up in a particular way so they just give over to it yeah that's part of i think it's a kind of a catalyst for their character development they're removed from their protective system and they're out on their own effectively here and they come up against this count olaf and that's where they find out what they're made of yeah that's why i like the characters they're not sitting there boo-hooing you know eventually they sort of make a <laughs> oh my parents died <laughs> no, no I, not, I mean of course they would about that but i mean about their situation with counter olaf uh olaf oh, yeah. like some people might break down and just you know live a miserable existence but they plan to escape and when they can't escape because of events transpiring they sort of look for a way out of their situation they, they never quite give up even in their sort of darkest most hopeless moments and yep. yeah they they are very proactive mm. and proactive here means <laughs> uh, cheeky little bastards <laughs> keith did you have any more thoughts just that i'll be going back and reading the next couple i think because i don't recall those so so readily and i want some more hmm. i would also consider reading more of them oh you've bought one now you should have bought the box set <laughs> <laughs> They were alarmingly expensive. Oh. It's a really nice, really nice hardcover, uh, really nicely presented and everything. So I don't think it's necessarily the, the bargain bin yeah, kind of okay. box set material, but 
given that it's 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 you know about an hour's read or something like that, it's certainly not bang for buck. Sure. Yeah, yeah I was amazed <laughs> at how quickly the Kindle percentage was going up. You know, you'd flick through a page, five percent. Wow. That was in stark contrast to our previous book, which was yes. much much longer than we expected. I thought my Kindle must be broken in the last book. <laughs> <laughs> Still 63%? Come on, what's Day, happening? Days remaining, 362? <laughs> oh, God. It's going up. Um, yeah. So, actually, that, that taps into something I do want to say. The, the theming there is really strong through both the physical presence of the book and in the book itself, and I really like that. Uh, although it doesn't put you in a particular time, it does put you in a particular feeling, and the, the feeling of the architecture and, and everything, I think, bleeds through the book, which is quite impressive. And although there is illustrations, in my head I was seeing that world as well. Mm. In my head I was seeing a combo of that Johnny Depp style of Alice in Wonderland or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory merged with like a Sweeney Todd, you know, where they're cooking mm. pies out of people in the basement. It sort of had that feeling to me right the way through in my head. Tim Burton-esque, maybe? Yeah, exactly mm. right. But, you know, I prefer Johnny Depp, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, how many of us watched the movie? I did. Me too. Patrick? I did not, but I saw it in cinemas some time ago. Oh. <laughs> I also watched it, but recently. Mm. I think I might start off with my thoughts of the movie and anyone else can chip in as I go along. I thought this was almost a perfect movie. It mashed together, I expect, Keith, and you might want to correct me if I'm wrong here, not only the first book, which is a bad beginning, but a couple of the others as well, maybe two or three of them. Is that right? Yeah, I think there's two other books that they also include parts from. So right. it sets up the same as A Bad Beginning, and then it uh, takes a diversion after their first encounter with Count Olaf, yeah. and it then has segments from two of the other books, and then it comes back to the conclusion of the first book in the movie. Right, and having not read book two and book three, I thought that the merging of those three actually worked quite well. I didn't feel like it was too out of whack. I could tell that they were separate books, but even when they started with book one, went to book two, book three, and then came back to the ending of book one, I felt it worked really well. I loved the aesthetic of the film. Yes, you're right, Brie, I I felt it actually, the movie looked Tim Burton-esque sort of had a very creepy and stylized view to it. It looked great, and I thought the child actors, that's something that can be hit or miss, and more often I feel they're a bit of a miss, but in this case, the child actors were perfect. They acted really, really well, and most of the adult characters as well were bang on. Glenn Close, is that her name? Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep, sorry. Yes, she was probably not so good, but almost all the others were amazingly good, but particularly the children. Billy Connolly was great. Oh, yeah, Billy Connolly, and the effects were pretty good. I enjoyed most of this movie much more than the book, and I really liked the narrator who was... Jude? Jude Law, yeah, and you don't really see him. You just see like a silhouette of him and maybe a little splash of light on his face right at the end of the movie and I think all of these things together made a great film except for the fact that they totally destroyed it by casting Jim Carrey (laughs) I was waiting for the uh, except or the you know the but no but it was and you hadn't mentioned Jim Carrey up to that point so I was kind of suspicious it was absolutely (laughs) catastrophic in the book you had this really evil and nasty and cruel and, and violent at times Count Olaf and um, 
part of what made the book so creepy and their triumph of the characters at the end so rewarding was the fact that you were triumphing over this really psychotic, uh, nasty, scheming man. And in the movie, Jim Carrey, who is capable sometimes of greatness, not often. (laughs) (laughs) Name it, because I'm struggling to think through. Uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I thought you were going to go with, I don't know. Ace Ventura there for a second. So. Ace Ventura 2. <laughs> and I, I didn't mind the one where he's trapped in the reality TV show. Uh, Truman Show. Yeah, the Truman Show, but particularly Eternal Sunshine. But in this, they turned him into a comedic character, and to me that was just it just stank of the cowardice of Hollywood that <laughs> if they put a really nasty, horrible, scary character in, then children and families would be scared away from the cinema. So rather than honour the art, they put in this clownish Count Olaf and it just ruined the mood of the film. Every other element came together perfectly. It's like having a lemon meringue pie and then filling it with an anchovy or something. Like <laughs> It was just wrong and it ruined the experience completely for me. Ooh. I think basically to get Jim Carrey, they had to give him poetic license to do what he wanted with the character. And I do think he was far more comedic than the cat I left in the book. But I do think that evil side did, did come through still in the movie for me in my watching. I didn't feel that there was enough sinister. So I had a much darker picture, much, much darker picture of Olaf from the book than I did in the film. But partly I think that's just because I do find Jim Carrey particularly his comedic style is just not amusing and you know the alrighty then yeah well the <laughs> the sticking out of the bottom and the you know the crazy walking and I just uh... yeah it was reminiscent of Ace Ventura definitely yeah, in that really sort of was, physical man. you know the silly faces the physical comedy the movements it was Jim Carrey Jim Carrey yeah being Jim Carrey and, and I did read that he was saying what he was doing in this was playing a bad actor. So he's casting himself in the roles. He plays different characters in the movie. That's a dangerous game to play, that one. (laughs) Yeah, so rather than actually reading the book and playing the character as it was intended. I think he still did that. I think you're being a little unfair, you two. (laughs) Definitely took things into Jim Carrey land as opposed to the climate of the book. So, yeah, it was a little jarring, but I like Jim Carrey's comedy in that sense, probably because of the times when I watched the original ones. If I was to have seen them for the first time now, I would not enjoy them, but uh, I have an attachment to, to some of those movies, Dumb and Dumber. I have to admit, I'm a bit of a, I'm a, bit of a suck for that one. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that's like my least favourite ever. Oh, uh, it's a secret <laughs> shame to be sure. <laughs> Patrick, you're the only one of us that would have been anywhere near the intended age group and you're probably still a bit off when the movie originally came out but you would have been a lot closer than we would have been Mm. do you remember how you felt about it and particularly Jim Carrey or is it too far gone I remember not minding it too much but I I think my recollections of I almost called him Ace Ventura my (laughs) recollections of Jim Carrey are that he was that kind of over-the-top Willy Wonka-esque type of character yeah and, and it's definitely not how I read him in the book. I, I think I w- sort of came into it expecting someone quite different when I was reading the book. And uh, yeah, so I definitely relate to that. I was thinking that it would be more comic than it was. 
And he was really just a prick, really, in the book. There wasn't that kind of slapstick element to anything that he did at all. Yeah. And that's definitely the way that Jim Carrey tends to take most everything that he does. But, yeah, as I say, it's, it's been an awfully long... I'll just go to IMDb. When did the movie actually uh, come out? I think mm, 2004. Yeah. So, yeah, I probably still would have been a little bit older than the intended age group there. But Yeah. Uh, I do I do remember enjoying it. Right. Yeah, I saw it at the cinemas as well, actually, which seems like it's longer ago than, than 2004, but... Because I, I didn't well, 2004 remember... 2004 is 11 years ago it is, now. It so. is, yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah, even though it's that old, well, you know, 11 years, that's not an insignificant amount of time for movies to have moved on. Watching it over the last weekend, I'm, I'm surprised it, it really sort of holds up well in terms of hmm. cinematography and, and, the, and the setting because they don't have a huge amount of special effects. I think it worked, like it still held up really well. Definitely. If only Jim Carrey wasn't, you know, <laughs> I would have enjoyed it so much. Who would you replace him with? Like, are we going to go really gritty and and put uh, Al Pacino in there or something? <laughs> like, the... What about the chap from No Country for Old Men? The <laughs> sugar. What's what's his name? Uh, ba- Baden. Javier Baden. You know, he's one of the yeah. scariest guys I've seen in a movie. Like, he's not a psychopath or mm. a cannibal or anything like that. But he had was a really powerfully strong and sinister type yeah. of character. He was definitely a psychopath. Right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, he had that <laughs> removal of emotion which scares you, which yeah, that would have played well, I think. Did you mention to me, Bree, that you would have liked Johnny Depp in this? Absolutely. I think that he actually does quite a or would you just like Johnny Depp in any full film? Stop. <laughs> well look, full stop. <laughs> I think it would have spoiled it in the same way. Because I think part of the problem with Jim Carrey in this movie is the way that he takes the attention off the children. Right. And it is ultimately their story. And you think that Johnny Depp would do the same thing? Yeah, definitely. But I don't think that he would overplay the character. I really think that Carrie really Seriously? Just... Yeah, I really do. Like, I think that Carrie really went absolutely over the top on this one. And I think that Johnny Depp is capable of a little bit more subtlety than that. And yet he can still command a scene. So in I think the real hero of this one was well either Emily Browning as the character of Violet I think mm, she was so she was beautifully played very thoughtful and careful in how she sort of went about it or Billy Connolly who was warm and cuddly despite his love for reptiles so I thought that he was really yeah that was really well done as well Actually yeah in contrast to the book he was the, the one adult character that was wise to Count Olaf and, and listen to the children basically mm. and he wasn't over the top like Meryl Streep, I found that she really just like completely overdid it. So, yeah. And maybe she sort of had to in order to try and keep up with <laughs> the energy and the ridiculousness that came from the Count Olaf in this. It was quite long as well for a children's movie. Because of the addition of the content from other books, it, it actually ran quite long. So the book as well, kind of hard to pinpoint an exact age where it's appropriate. And I think the same holds true for the movie. That that reminds me that uh, when you just said that, that I thought, oh, maybe they should have done uh, as a short series or something. And then I reminded, sorry, I remembered that Patrick, was it you that was telling us or Keith? I think I might have sent you a link or something yeah. and Netflix has picked it up. Yeah, Netflix series, having just watched a few of them, I've almost finished Jessica Jones and really enjoyed Daredevil and Narcos. Like They seem to be capable of really good 
television series, edging up towards the quality of HBO. So I'm pretty excited about that because there's the potential to do it really well. Yeah, they've just started casting, I think. Hmm. Well, I think that's something to look forward to. I'm sure they won't stop the actors in the middle of their acting to explain a word to us, and that will be good. (laughs) What if they do have a narrator that does do that? (laughs) Well, actually, you know what? When I was watching the movie, it was a little bit more tolerable because the ones that they did do did tend to be more towards the joke rather than the pure definition, so I didn't mind that. And they also flicked back to see Lemony Snicket sort of saying it some of those times as well, which I found less jarring. But Right. It's still annoying. And Jude Law's voice was quite pleasant to listen to anyway. So. <laughs> All right, Bree, it's that time. Before we score, I think given the Netflix series, you might find, Patrick, that they do re-release these books in a collected edition and, and we'll then be able to sweep in and pick up these wonderfully themed Victorian-style or Gothic-style books for a song. Uh, I won't hold my breath in the corporate behemoth bookstores in Australia. But <laughs> we shall see. Hmm. All right, Bree, it's that time again. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we've got five options this week for scoring with me. Is this book? Stop it. (laughs) It's the joke that never gets old. (laughs) (laughs) One of the jokes that never gets old. Welcome to Scoring with Bree. Is this book as bad as having your parents die in a fire? (laughs) As bad as spending time with a weird relative that wants to marry you. As average as Jim Carrey's acting. Trying to do the right thing but struggles a little bit like Mr. Poe. These are all like really negative so far. Are, we, are you going to give 20 options? Actually <laughs> building up to this. <laughs> or is it as warm, quick-witted and quirky as the Baudelaire's? Patrick. Uh, well, definitely the, the latter. I really enjoyed it. It's good. I give it five stars. Keith? Yeah, it's five stars for me. I have to say, though, Jim Carrey's acting is anything but average, no matter where you stand on the Jim Carrey spectrum. (laughs) Alrighty then. What about you, Bree? This is going to start an offline conversation where I'm going to send you clips of all of his average acting. (laughs) Still not average, even if you hate it. It's definitely not average. Mm. (laughs) Look, I think that this book is warm and quick-witted as well. I really enjoyed it. (sighs) Laurie. I can't decide whether it's... The weird relative that wants to marry me or Jim Carrey's acting. Uh, so just because I'm feeling a bit of peer pressure, I'm going to say Jim Carrey's acting. Fairly average. So it's average. Yeah. Oh, can you keep quiet for a second, Laurie, while I pat myself on the back for this wonderful book selection? <laughs> well, well done, Keith. When do you get to do your next book, Keith? I don't know. If Laurie's making the decisions, he might not let me choose for a while. <laughs> well, you know what? I think uh, I think this one's going to be a lot more universally enjoyed than Brog the Stupid. <laughs> a total of 39 listens, I think, on that one. Give it a go, people. The book and the podcast. 37 of them were from Laurie. <laughs> no, well done, Keith. I did actually really want to read this book, and I, and I, I do feel a bit upset that I was disappointed with both the book and the movie for different reasons. I can understand why you liked it, though, all of you. So, yeah, good choice. Next episode, a timeless classic suggested by Bree, of which I know nothing other than as a very young boy. I no doubt studiously avoided this book because I thought it was a girl's book. And that all people named Bland were a little bit shit. 
Hey. <laughs> Apparently, I'm a giant turd, though, because according <laughs> to the le- <laughs> because according to legend, Anne of Green Gables, by Lucy Maud Montgomery, was the business. So next week, it's business time. <laughs> You're outrageous. That was phenomenal. <laughs> Thanks all for listening. If you had fun, feel free to hit us up on Facebook and Twitter at Seeking Tumnus and leave a message so we know you're not one of the thousands of automatons that we keep attracting. <laughs> Until next episode, remember if you're rich, smart, and thrust into the home of a sinister, predatory creeper of a relative, emancipate, motherfucker! And keep reading. <laughs> well, f you do now. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely, well done. All right, I might just uh, re-record that without no, the funny no. bits. They have to stay. Well, no, no, that's the best bit. You've got to keep it. All right. Well, yeah, <clears throat> until next episode, remember if you're rich, smart, and thrust into the home of a sinister, predatory creeper of a relative, emancipate and keep f- reading. <laughs> <laughs> Out. I'm still seeking tumblers. I'm still seeking tumblers. Did you hear me say bland? Because, Bree, I don't think you'll get it because you haven't seen Arrested Development, but the rest of you might enjoy it. Do we still need to keep talking? Dashing through the snow